0: Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, and the Pew Bibles, page 918 in front of you. And this chapter, in many ways, marks a significant transition in the life of the early church, for it's here that we have the doors of mercy being opened to the Gentiles. And some commentators have even speculated, even said about this passage, that it's so significant that it provides anywhere from the biblical basis to eating bacon— to Gentiles being brought into the church, a Pentecost 2.0, if you will. And so I will begin our time together this morning by reading the first 33 verses from Acts chapter 10. Here now as God speaks to us through His holy, inspired, and life-giving Word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian Cohort. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven And they said, "'Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say.' So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends.' When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call common any person, common or unclean. So when I sent for... I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, "'Four days ago about this hour "'I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, "'and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing "'and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard "'and your alms have been remembered before God. "'Send therefore to Joppa "'and ask for Simon who is called Peter. "'He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. "'So I sent for you at once "'and you have been kind enough to come.' Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the, the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray one, once more. Father, we do come before you as the great King of all creation, and we come to you to hear from your word. Lord, may you speak now in this text. May we see Jesus Christ and Him crucified and resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Human history is full of moments that I'm sure at the time that they occurred may have seemed like things that were not all that significant, but then later turned out to be quite significant. You could take, for example, wars in human history. For example, 1775, a scuttle between Minutemen and the Redcoats in Lexington and Concord, the shot heard round the world, was just one battle that led to a revolutionary war and the birth of a nation. Or you could look back to 1914 and the assassination of the Archduke of Austria. Here was one man dying, creating then two world wars out of his death. And we come to a text upon first reading may seem like something not altogether significant. It's a meeting between Peter and Cornelius. But as we examine it, as we see the truth that God has revealed in it, we will find that it is actually far more significant than we imagine. For in it, God is opening the door of mercy to the Gentiles. And one minister commented on this passage that in Acts chapter 10, We have the right hand of God upon Cornelius and the left hand of God upon Peter, drawing these two together, doing a work in both of them, and therefore creating a union between Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. And so that's precisely what we want to look at this morning, the work of God in the life of Cornelius, then the work of God in the life of Peter, and then finally the work of God among the Gentiles. So first, the work of God in Cornelius. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So we're introduced to this man by virtue of his vocation and nationality. He's a centurion. He's a military captain of about 100 soldiers, and he's a Roman soldier. He's a Gentile through and through. And in This ancient context of Israel, centurions were not looked on to favorably by the Jews. In fact, they were seen something like the tax collectors. They had a low approval rating in the eyes of the Jews. And yet, we find in the New Testament, centurions are often put in a positive light, aren't they? It's in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus heals a centurion's servant. And he says, surely not even in Israel have I found such faith. And then we find in Mark chapter 15, on the eve of Christ's crucifixion, a centurion comes up to the crucified Lord Jesus Christ and said, surely this man was the Son of God. And you find all throughout the book of Acts, actually positive portraits of centurions. And we see another one here with Cornelius, if you look at verse 2. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. He was a pious man. He was a man that cared about prayer to the Lord. He was a man who gave generously to the people. He was a man that worshipped Israel's God. Now, he wasn't a proselyte. He hadn't been circumcised. And yet he has a reverence for this religion of the Jews that he had been around in Caesarea. And so this is the spiritual state of Cornelius' soul. God is clearly doing a work in Cornelius. But of course, there is something that Cornelius needs, isn't there? And you find that in verse 3. He needs revelation. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. So what's the content of this vision? Well, the Lord isn't coming to Cornelius and saying, Good job, boy, for your reverence of my name. Good job for caring for the poor. He doesn't come and congratulate Cornelius, although he's recognizing, Yes, your prayers have ascended before me as a memorial before God. Uh, But here he says, Peter, or he says to Cornelius, you need Peter. And so we see that the Lord is doing a work here in Cornelius. He has prepared him. He has tilled the soil of his soul, getting him ready for the messenger, Peter. How often is it that how God works in our lives, that he may have put a general fear of him before you at a young age, that you may have even prayed to a God that you really didn't know. And of course, this was God's work, sowing seeds of the gospel in your heart to when the messenger would come, the word would be brought, then you would believe. And that's what we will see here in the next few verses. And so that's the work of God in Cornelius. But second, the work of God in Peter. There was a young minister in 18th century Scotland who was relatively new to preaching he hadn't preached quite often yet and so after he was done preaching a sermon an older minister came up to him to give him feedback on the sermon and of course most of it was encouraging but he left him with this one nugget of truth that changed the whole tenor of his preaching for the rest of his life if you were entered on preaching Christ you would find it very pleasant And so that young minister took that to heart. It changed his life. It changed his preaching. It was a paradigm shift in his preaching. And that's actually what we find here with the work of God that he's doing in Peter's life. He's bringing a paradigm shift to his whole understanding, his thinking as a Jewish believer. No longer are Gentiles to be regarded dogs, as we'll see here in the next few verses. Look at verse 9. I'm sure some of you have had the experience of being so hungry that you may have said, I could faint. Especially if you have teenage boys, you'll hear hear that hyperbole often in the house. I'm so hungry I could die. Uh, Well, here, Peter is hungry, of course, but this isn't an ordinary hunger. It's a hunger that actually leads to a trance because God is giving him a vision. And what is that vision? It's this great sheet descending upon The earth being let down by its four corners with all kinds of reptiles, birds, animals. And so Peter, in his deep hunger, could look at that and certainly justify, well, here is some food for me to eat. He's waiting for lunch. And, of course, he can satisfy his hunger if he just took one of these animals. And yet that's not the response that we see by the apostle Peter, do we? Look at verse 14. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And so he has this vision from the Lord. The command that comes from the Lord, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But what is his response? By no means, Lord. And at one level, we can see how that is disobedience. Peter is often in the pattern of disobeying the Lord, saying, by no means, Lord. Of course, every Christian should have in their sentences only yes next to Lord. But Peter is clearly unwelcome to this whole idea of killing and eating these animals. But on another level, it's actually to be entirely expected. You can go back to Leviticus chapter 11 and the Lord lays out, prescribes, here are the animals that you may not eat. And what's listed there? Reptiles. Reptiles certain kinds of birds, and certain kinds of animals. And so Peter is a good Jewish believer. He knows his Old Testament well. He's not going to believe just any vision from heaven that abrogates God's law. And yet, of course, it was even in the ministry of Christ that he began to show how the law was a tutor to point them to Christ. And Christ says in Mark chapter 7 that all of these foods that you think make you unclean, they simply go into the stomach. It's what is in the heart that defiles a man. And thus he declared all foods clean because at the advent of Christ, Christ was showing that he is the fulfillment of the law. Those dietary restrictions which were established to set apart Israel from the rest of the nations, those days have ended because in Christ, the gospel has come. That's where true holiness Is found. And yet, of course, Peter is still not buying it, as you see even in verse 15 and 16. And the voice came to him again a second time What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Peter was often in the habit of also seeing things in threes, wasn't he? He denied Christ three times on that resurrection breakfast in John. What does Christ say to him? But three times, Peter, do you love me? It takes Peter some time to get the message. It takes Peter a long time in some cases. And we see even throughout the rest of Acts 10 that he doesn't quite get it yet. But the Lord is clearly doing a work in Peter He's changing his his own perceptions, the ways that he views the world. All of that was coming crashing down because God was showing him that he's doing a new work in the world. And so we have this work that God was doing in Peter's life. But then finally we see God's work among the Gentiles as this meeting is now arranged between Cornelius and Peter. Uh, Several years ago, a friend of mine and I went to a pastor's gathering uh, where one of the world premier New Testament scholars was there speaking to all of these pastors. And afterwards, he was introducing himself to some of the different pastors that were there and greeting people as they left. And so we were big fans at the time, and so we rushed up there to go say hello. Uh, Well, as many do when they are starstruck uh, by celebrities, my friend locked up. He couldn't say a word because he was in the presence of this great man uh, that he perceived. And so he said simply, well, uh, Seth has a question for you. <laughs> I thought that was a way to throw a man under the bus right there. Uh, but the reason why I tell you this story is because after Cornelius finally gets his meeting, he gets his visitation, he falls down in awe of Peter And you see that in verse 25 and 26. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And so Cornelius is clearly not putting his worship in the right place. He's bowing down to this man named Peter. And Peter rebukes him right on the spot. He says, stand up, I'm just another man. And I think we can all see the problem with that. Worship only belongs to the one true God. But I hope you can see the excitement, the awe of Cornelius. That he's so thrilled by the concept that Peter, a minister of Jesus Christ, oh, eyewitness of Jesus Christ, would be in his midst to tell him the truth about Jesus Christ. That he falls down in awe. And you see those great words that Cornelius even says as he remarks on why this whole event took place in verse 33. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. The Lord was doing a work in Cornelius. Here was that gospel minister in his midst, and he's excited. He wants to hear the word. He wants to hear everything about Jesus Christ. And shouldn't this be the heartbeat of every Christian, every Lord's Day that we have this sense of eagerness, the sense of awe and expectation that Christ is going to be preached to us by his word. That's what marks a true Christian. This is how you know that he's doing a work in your life, is that he has put in your heart an eagerness and expectation to hear his word. And so here we have this meeting that's been set up, and now it's Peter's chance To preach and if you've been with us through our study in the book of acts you'll know going all the way back to acts chapter 2 was that great day of pentecost where peter preaches to thousands he preaches of christ's life death burial and resurrection and the spirit falls down on those first jewish christians and they're speaking in tongues they're extolling magnifying the glorious work of god in jesus christ And Luke is telling this story in such a way to show that this is, in some way, a Gentile Pentecost 2.0, what we're about to witness here in God's work among the Gentiles. Now, of course, we know that Pentecost is as unrepeatable as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a one-time event. But here, Luke is simply trying to show us that the same Savior is preached. The same spirit is received and the same sign of baptism is administered. And so in this portion of Scripture, Acts chapter 10, it is truly showing how the doors of mercy are being opened wide to the Gentiles. And this was God's plan all along. You can go back to Genesis chapter 12 where God makes a promise to Abraham to set apart this nation of Israel. It's in his seed that all the families of the earth would be blessed. You can go to Isaiah chapter 49 and see how Israel was to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. You can even go to Luke chapter 2, Simeon's song about the advent of Christ, and you will see that Christ was that light of revelation to the Gentiles. So all along in the Old Testament, New Testament, God's purpose, His plan, His kingdom was not just for one nation but was for all of the peoples of the earth, that they would be blessed in Jesus Christ. And this is the message that Peter is finally beginning to grasp here as he preaches on this second day of Pentecost. You can look at it in verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So Peter is simply trying to show the Gentiles the message that God was working into his heart, that God shows no partiality. The gospel is for the Jew, yes, but it's also for the Gentile. All of these artificial distinctions that we make among ourselves, they are to be eradicated at the foot of the cross. Because in Jesus Christ, God is saving people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and and language. This is what God is doing. And so Peter simply preaches almost an identical sermon as in Acts chapter two. And maybe this afternoon you could go home and, and compare these two sermons with one another. Of course, Acts two is far longer, but the same elements are there. He's preaching the same savior. He preaches Christ's earthly life and ministry, how he conquered Satan himself, how he uh, brought healing and forgiveness to people throughout his ministry. And then, of course, he preaches his death and resurrection, how Christ conquered death on the third day when he rose from the dead. And then he ends his sermon, as you see, in verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one pointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so it's the same Savior with the same forgiveness. He's saying to the Gentiles, you come in exactly as those Jews came in on the day of Pentecost by believing this message of the same Savior. You know, it's quite often that preachers will have a couple sermons in their back pocket that they can preach in any location when they're called upon to preach. Uh, So maybe it's a home run sermon if they have it. Uh, But Peter certainly had a back pocket sermon. That's what we just read, the same Savior. How could he preach this sermon so often throughout the book of Acts? How could he even preach it to all kinds of different people? Of course, this is a vastly different audience than the day of Pentecost. These are Gentiles. Well, it's because it's this message that provides forgiveness of sins in his name. There is no other message that provides forgiveness of sins in his name. You could do all of the contextualization work you want. You can be culturally relevant. But it's this message that saves And so we have here the same Savior, but it's even the same Spirit that is poured out on these Gentiles, as you see in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. The same result as in Acts chapter 2. The spirit falls on those who heard the word. I love how Luke is joining together those two realities. The spirit and the word. Because if it's just the word, it's lifeless. It's bare. And if it's just experience, it's mystical and misguided. But if it's a spirit with the word, then you have power. Then you have conversion. Then you have new life in Jesus Christ. And so the spirit falls upon even the Gentiles, all of the people around Peter, this group of early believers were amazed that that promise that was made to Abraham had come into fulfillment even in these Gentiles here, that God was blessing all the families of the earth, and he was starting with the family of Cornelius. And so we see the same Savior being preached, the same spirit being poured out, and then finally, we see the same sign being administered as on the day of Pentecost. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Well, there you have it. Baptism for these Gentile believers. And what's the significance of baptism? Well, we know that our church's catechism teaches that baptism is that solemn admission into the visible church. It's that sign that marks you apart from the rest of the world. No longer is circumcision to be that defining mark, but it's baptism. It's through baptism that you are brought into God's family, one body in Jesus Christ. And so Peter simply asks, how can we withhold people that have believed in Jesus Christ, have the Spirit at work amongst them? How can we withhold that true sign of being engrafted, included in Christ's church? What a wonderful day that would have been to be these disciples alongside Peter, for Peter to even witness how God is doing a work among the Gentiles And it's this same Savior, the same Spirit, the same sign that we see in Acts 2 and Acts 10 that would then go to Acts 11 in the first Gentile church in Antioch. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul, who is that apostle to the Gentiles, brings the gospel to the ends of the known Roman world. And here we are in McKinney, Texas today, preaching the same Savior with the same Spirit at work in us. All being baptized by the same sign of holy baptism. What a wonderful thing that is that we are all part of the same body as they were in Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 10. And so I hope you see, of course, the wonderful work of sovereign mercy that God took a man named Cornelius from among the nations was doing a work in his heart, getting him ready to hear the gospel, and then he brings the minister the word to bear upon his soul, and his spirit quickens him, gives him new life in Jesus Christ. And if you have come to Christ and believed in his name, that's what that same work has happened in you. Sovereign mercy in your own life. That's a wonderful thing. But if you're in here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, do you not see that God has put his hand on you and brought you to this place to hear of Jesus Christ and his saving excellency for you. And so do not pass up this moment. Cornelius wasn't guaranteed another meeting like this, but he simply said, I'm here to hear all that the Lord Jesus has commanded you to say. And so we are to wonder at sovereign mercy, but we're also to wonder at the church's unity. If you know anything about the New Testament church, it was full of division. In fact, most of the division centered on this issue of Gentiles and Jews living alongside of each other in the church of Jesus Christ. And so you'll find in many of the New Testament letters, they're dealing with this problem. How can Gentiles and Jews coexist? Well, we have the true foundation of Christian unity, don't we, here? The world will try to give you all kinds of of solutions to solving the division that exists. Even people in the church might say that we can really unite around this program or this kind of person. Well, here we have the true foundation of the church's unity. It's in Jesus Christ. We have the same Savior. We have the same Spirit and the same sign. We are one body in Jesus Christ. And so we are to put off partiality. We are not to regard some people as clean and some people as unclean, but we are to see everyone through the view of Jesus Christ, because there's only those who are in Christ and those who are out of Christ. We are one body. We have one faith, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism that joins us all together. And so might we be like Peter who says, surely I know that God shows no. Partiality. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the church of Jesus Christ that you have called each one of us into it. You have given us a family. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us as we have entered upon division and strife. But Lord, would you maintain that unity and the bond of peace which you give us your spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.